Earlier this week, Indie.vc, one of the main sources of financing for companies like ours, announced their shutting down due to the challenges finding financial backers. We discuss that and much more in this episode. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. What's up this week, Tyler? Well, I feel like we should talk about uh, what happened with Indie.VC or IndieVC. What do you say? IndieVC? IndieVC is what I say. Okay. I guess it doesn't matter because they just shut down. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is the the announcement by Bryce, who is the founder and main character over there, um, he, it seemed a little cryptic. Like his announcement wasn't, we're shutting down. It was, we're not going to do investments for the foreseeable future. He left it yeah. open-ended. He did, although I, I kind of got the impression that he is still a venture capitalist and will be investing, but like the mo- the model, I, I don't know. I knew who IndieVC was before this, but I didn't necessarily, there's a lot of like stuff behind the scenes that you can Im- Im- infer, but that's not necessarily stated explicitly. And one of them, I guess, was that he basically said, we're not going to do what a normal venture capital firm does. And we're going to like explicitly go after these companies that aren't chasing you know, billion dollar exits and stuff like that. I kind of get the impression now he's going to be going after billion dollar exits again. It seemed like whatever the the hypothesis behind NDVC wasn't holding. And as a result, there was a pivot, a pivot happening. I don't know what the pivot is. I think your yeah. guess is Yeah, we'll mine. see. We, yeah. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any like re- immediate reaction to the fact that this happened? Well, part of my challenge in this is if I throw out a couple of options in the space, it's sort of like I put NDVC in a category, I put earnest capital in this category, and I put tiny seed in this category. Mm-hmm. Would you add anyone else? No, my, I, I think I would, I would have those three, but like NDVC was a little later stage. I think like they were writing bigger checks, earnest and tiny seed. I would put head to head with each other as like the first, you know, very early traction for a company would be raising from them. And then there's other options that are like not equity financing. Yeah. So those are the three sort of trying to redo the VC model for bootstrappers. What's the check size difference between group one and group two, group one being NDVC and group two being the other two? I think that both Ernest and Tiny Seed are writing something like 100000 to $200,000 checks. And I think NDVC is like more common, I think, would be 500 or a million. Okay, interesting. That's the impression I get. Cool. Um, one of the hardest things, uh, and I found an awesome article by Outseta, I think is how you say it, that goes through each of these options and explains what their terms were. Um, I say were for indie, but uh, mm-hmm. are for the rest. And uh, from what I can tell, they're very similar. But were there, are there any, like, what I'm interested in is, what does this mean for that group as a whole? Uh, yeah. In your mind, is this bad? Is, is this bad news for everyone? Or is this, is was NDVC fundamentally different in some way than these other two? Have you got any ideas around this? Yeah, so let's talk about this. And the reason this matters, like, neither of us have raised from any of these companies. I am an investor in Earnest Capital, so I, I guess I'm biased in that sense. But, like, this, these are the only three funds, or at least prominent funds, investing in companies that might be startup to last companies. Like, if you go raise money from anyone else, you're not doing what we're doing here. And the reason this matters to us is because like the whole ecosystem could be impacted, right? Um, I 
interpret NDVC's, I don't want to call it a failure, but like shutting down, giving up, whatever. It seems to me like it's based on the fact that they couldn't raise money from LPs, limited partners, who are the, the people who put the money into the fund. That was the problem, not that the investments were failing. That's how I interpreted it. That's how my interpretation is too. Um, does that bode? Did you think what is different about Tiny Seed, for example, and Earth Capital do you, that that you that you know about that mm-hmm. might be allow them to dodge that problem? Yeah, so I think IndyVC was okay. Like every every venture capital firm has two sides. One side is raising money from LPs, and the other side is like deploying that money, investing in startups. I think IndyVC was j- very similar to Ernest and Tiny Seed in terms of how they deployed the money, but they were much more like a normal venture capital fund in terms of how they raised it from their investors. And I think the problem is like, it, so normal venture capitalists go, to, most of their money comes from hedge funds, pension plans, endowments from universities, things like that. Those people don't want to invest in like the next weird niche investment thing. They want like mainstream, you know, you don't get fired for buying IBM type stuff. So I think that's how it's different. Like Ernest Capital, I'm again, I'm an LP and I'm like, I don't have money. I, I mean, I have like more than the average American, but I'm not like the investor class in America. They're taking small checks from people like me rather than going to a hedge fund and being like, give me, you know, $10 million all at once. Hypothetically, Indy VC could have tried and failed at the same thing. Do we yeah. know if they did that? I don't know if they did. Uh I, I was so I was listening. A lot of this information is coming from I was listening on Twitter Spaces, which, by the way, now I've used Twitter Spaces for the first time ever, which is like their clubhouse ripoff. Um, between Tyler Tringas, who runs Ernest, and then Justin Jackson, who's kind of a prominent SaaS entrepreneur, uh, the impression I got there is that, or maybe it was from some other article I read, but basically that IndyVC spun out of a more traditional venture capital fund and like. I don't. Th- I just don't think it ever really had the leeway. Like Ernest Capital is almost its own startup. It's like we're going to do things. We're going to go back to first principles, reinvent the model from scratch. It might totally fail. I think NDVC was more of a pivot from a normal f- fund, and as a result, probably didn't have that kind of leeway. It makes sense. Yeah, I'd be very. It'll be interesting to watch. Um, did have you heard from who runs Tiny C? Is it Rob Walling? Yeah. Um. So have you heard it from directly from Tyler or Rob? about how they see themselves being affected by this or, or what, what are they, you, you can kind of have two reactions if you're leading one of these other firms. One mm-hmm. is, yeah, that's a problem. Here's what we're doing to address it or, or completely different. That doesn't apply to us. Have you heard uh, anything? I haven't heard anything from Rob Walling in this Twitter thing I listened to. Tyler said something really interesting. Cause like when I first talked to him before investing in earnest, I was kind of like, you're competing with Tiny Seed and NDVC, like, what are you going to do to compete? And he was like, we are, but we're not. And I didn't, uh, when he first said that to me, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Everyone says that, but like you are. Um, But now I understand what he meant because he said it on this Twitter thing. And that is basically like things are going well with the money they have, but the, the amount of companies to invest in are an order or two orders of magnitude larger than the amount of money they have to invest. So he's basically like the bottleneck is raising money from LPs, not finding deal flow to actually invest in. And what he was basically saying is as soon as you may, as soon as this starts to appear to be a safe investment to a hedge fund or something like that, everybody who's currently in the game is so much better off. So like, yes, he's competing with 
uh, tiny seed in a sense, but like really what's going on is both of them want this to seem like a safe investment so that they can be the Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz of the next generation of investing. So in that sense, I think it's a bad thing. Like it doesn't hurt any of the companies, but it it makes it less likely that this investor class is going to start putting their money into this type of fund. Because they're going, hey, you're, there were three, now there are two. I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to be invested in a dead fund, or not even that it's dead, but like no one wants to take a risk. And if there are ten companies, and all if if Harvard's endowment fund is putting money into this, then Stanford's endowment fund can look at it and be like, well, okay, sure, Harvard's doing it, we'll do it too. But he didn't. I shouldn't. He didn't say like this is bad. This is my interpretation of the logic. But yeah, yeah, it's cool. I I I was frustrated by that Twitter Spaces conversation because. I saw it after the fact, and it, it's like what, that was. I, I got mad. I was kind of mad that I was even invited. I, I I wish the whole invite had disappeared once the tweet. Why should I see a tweet about Twitter Spaces after the Twitter Spaces is over? It's like I know. Fuck I, you, Twitter. Like, and then I, I feel this get way about Clubhouse to, too. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I mean, were there any other takeaways from that conversation? I should say Justin Jack. I was on a different Twitter Spaces thing, and Justin Jackson recorded it. And I think he's going to start publishing recordings of Twitter Spaces, so it may be recorded. I couldn't listen to the whole thing because I, you know, again, it's like, are they having this talk at the time that's convenient for me? So I listened like twenty minutes, and then I had to go to dinner. But uh, no, that that was my big takeaway. Is just I think this comes down to it is hard to get traditional investors to put money into this, but the investments are actually working well. Um, so there's nothing and, wrong with the startups and earnest capital specifically is trying some different funding, you know, raising, uh, yeah. strategies, uh, for example, the subscription that you're right, that you're a part of. And I would guess that tiny, I don't get the impression that tiny seed is struggling to raise money, but I think they both have a lot less money than NDVC did. So I, I just, I I'm leaving tiny seed out of it just cause I don't know as much about it. Not, not because I think they're. And anything I say about Ernest might also apply to Tiny Seed, as far as I know. Yeah, it's just it 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 is interesting. Like, there's a lot of noise about this happening, but not a whole lot of insight. Um, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, everyone's yeah. talking about it, but you're not really. No one's really coming out and saying like, "Here's why this matters." Right. Boom, boom, boom. With that, actually knows what's going. You know, the inside of this p- stuff. So part of I don't know what that the, means. The announcement's so cryptic, like. We're used to this world where people are pretty open and stuff like that, but I understand that like investors are going to naturally be a little more secretive. So I just don't think anyone has the information they need. I guess I, I take I look at that as like a negative um, f- for this space because if this was an opportunity for someone to really say, "Hey, we're different. We have this is a opportunity for me to tell you why we're special and why we're going to make it," mm-hmm. they would have seized on this, and so. Yeah, I think Tyler Tringas did in this talk. He like I was already an investor. I was already bought in, but I walked away from it being like, okay, I understand better why this was a good investment. But I agree it's frustrating that this is like these conversations are happening not privately, but like not in a way that can be well like disseminated, I guess. Yeah, so maybe it's just like a function of Twitter Spaces timing and all that kind of stuff, but it definitely seems uh seems like it seems hard to follow. I'm glad I'm glad to have you uh sort of guide me through this. Um, so I, I want to come back to one thing you said, you know, kind of switching subjects for a second, which was if you're a, if you're subscribing to the startup to last mentality, you're probably not going to raise money from one of these funds. I don't know. I did some research today and a lot of them have, you know, go to z- basically you know, massively cut the equity out to a to a 
pretty insignificant piece once you pay back a certain part of the the initial investment. Are you saying? Do you do? You- Sorry, I'm saying if you're a startup to last company, you might raise from earnest tiny seed or indie hack uh, indie VC. You wouldn't raise from Andreessen Horowitz. And I think the big reason being a, a traditional venture capitalist, the only way they make their money is by selling their shares. They're not looking for dividends or earning shares agreements or any of that stuff. With those three specifically, they had a mechanism for getting paid back without the company ever exiting. Exactly. Good. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I misinterpreted. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, having read through the, some of the docs and the explanation that Outset had provided, it became more attractive to me to be on the other side of the table from you, which is you know actually potentially raise money from some of these guys. Yeah, I... Uh... I, absolutely. I if I were going to raise ever, it would be from at, at this point Tiny Seed or Ernest Capital for sure. And I all almost all of my concerns with having investors go away with them. But the the key thing is it's because they don't assume any control or any expectations. Yeah, and they give you that way of returning their money without having to sell the company, which is the key thing for you. The the um, other thing I was I I was noticing when I was reading the outset articles, they, they mentioned a financing mechanism, which is more revenue-based financing for SaaS companies from lighter capital. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you're past the stage of maybe a tiny seed or a uh, earnest capital. You're more into the revenue-based financing categories and you'd probably would, would take money from a lighter capital, for example. Yeah. For lighter capital pipe and stripe capital are all, uh, I think options in that space. Yeah. That seems more where you are based on $3 million ARR. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Let me provide a framework for why I think that's true. You, I think you know more about like finance and stuff than me. So tell me what you think about this. Um, if you look at like the traditional model, you have banks that loan money, like lines of credit and things like that. And then you have kind of equity financing. I don't know. What, what, what would a bank be like? Debt. Debt finance. Okay, right. Yeah. Absolutely. I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Debt financing and then equity financing where you're like, sell, you're giving them a chunk of your company. You don't have to pay back the money they give you but they, they get ownership. And my understanding is like, normally you'd think of it like equity financing is for taking risk where it's like, it's unlikely you'll be able to pay them back. Nobody knows. But so if you do pay them back, because there are so many losers, when you win, you need more than just to get your money back with some interest. You need like major upside. Yeah. And, so you, you, and you take over the company in, in the case of default. Yeah. Right. So like if you have a really proven like, you give me $100, I'll give you $110 back in six months. Everyone knows this is going to happen. You would never sell equity for that. You'd take on debt because it's it's better for the company. Like, Why would you give up your upside if you're so confident you can pay it back? The financial term for this is cost of capital. Um, the riskier the use of capital that, you're, that you have. Um, so let's just take your example, $1,000. Um, you have a use of capital for $1,000. The riskier... Uh, that um, that payback, uh, the payback uh, likelihood is um, on that one thousand uh, dollars. The higher the cost of capital and mm-hmm. debt typically um, requires a certain low cost of capital where you would pay interest on the the loan, whereas the cost of capital for like a um, an equity type arrangement is much higher. But if you're super, if you're not, you know, if you're not um, Financeable by debt, based on their you know risk tolerance, then you may only have an option of a higher cost of capital right uh, okay. arrangement like equity. Um, that makes but sense. But given the choice between two 
you know, all the, you know, the full spectrum, you, you typically from financial standpoint, want to go with the lowest cost of capital option. Right. Which would be debt generally. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So to translate that into this new, like bootstrapper friendly world, the NDVC, Ernest, Tiny Seed, those are the high cost of capital equity financing options. Um, and then these other ones, lighter capital, Stripe and Pipe are kind of lower cost of capital, I think. So the idea is once you can be like, we're going to be able to pay you your money back, you don't need to worry about it. You'd rather not give up equity in your company if you can avoid it. Does, does that mesh with what, what you would yes. think? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I still think though they're very high cost of capital. Like if you look, I've, I've kind of, I, I looked at uh, lighter capital. It, it was a few years ago, so maybe it's changed, but I looked at Stripe. I looked at Pipe. They all, you end up paying just a very high effective interest rate. So I do think there's like a lot of room in the market for those. Like th- there's whatever, you know, you pay on a mortgage, which right now is like two and a half percent or something. These companies are charging 18%. I'm not saying it's ever going to get down to two and a half, but like it should probably be lower than 18%. Uh, for a company like Less Annoying CRM, if we wanted a $50,000 line of credit, like which is, you know, one fifth of our monthly revenue, like we should be able to get that for cheaper. But right now there's not a good way to. You, you, you can't get a 50K line of credit. I, I'm surprised by that. It seems like you could go to a bank and get a revolver, a revolving line of credit for, you know, uh, float like pretty easily. You're probably right. So we tried this in, I want to say 2015, 2016. We were probably right around 1 million ARR when we tried this. Um, the banks didn't explicitly turn us away. We were working with two banks. I think if we'd stuck with it, it would have worked, but they were making us jump through all these hoops and stuff. Banks are not uh, set up to value recurring revenue. So the thing that's novel about Stripe and Lighter Capital is they're like, okay, we're going to look at your recurring revenue. We have risk models to understand, yes, you're you're going to pay it back. Banks are like, what physical assets do you have? And we we're like, none. We have computers and desks and chairs. That's all we have. And so they were like, well, we're not backing, like that's not collateral, enough collateral for this line of credit. So they were really hesitant. Totally. Yeah. You have to find a banker. You, Yeah. You have to, you, it's important in your space to have a banker understand your business and traditional bankers. It should be better now, but like still don't get recurring revenue businesses, software yeah. businesses. This is probably a downside of being in St. Louis too. Like I bet if you're in the Bay Area, like there's a bank called Silicon Valley Bank. I, I don't know much about them, but I bet they know how to value recurring revenue a little oh, yeah, bit better. They definitely do. <laughs> yeah. Um that was good. I'm I'm we haven't talked about the financing side of this in a while. And I feel like the first time we tried to talk about this on the podcast, we were far less sophisticated about mm-hmm. the options. It was more like, well, what do you do? You know, when you're when you're a start less company. I feel like we've gotten a lot more knowledgeable. And the options, I'm honestly like, despite indie going away, like Ernest is substantially more robust than it was Mm -hmm. when we started the podcast. If anyone's interested in this, um, I cannot recommend highly enough. Go to ErnestCapital.com, whatever their uh, whatever their website is, and look up the investment memo for their second fund. It's super super long, but I think that that's something that didn't exist the last time we talked about. That is that blog post. It explains this in great detail, and it also explains like why can these new options exist when they couldn't before? Because it kind of have, have you read that? It kind of talks about like that we're in the deployment phase of SaaS right now. Yep, I think it's a fantastic uh, article. So go, go read that if you want to learn more about this stuff. It's a doozy. Prepare yourself. Oh, it's, yeah, it's it's, it's a all it's a Saturday Sunday morning like <laughs> four hour read. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Cool. Yeah, that was fun to talk about. Um, 
moving on though, like uh, what's what's up with you? Well, I have a, a quick revenue and client update. Small numbers, um, but uh, you know, I started the year about fifteen hundred in monthly recurring revenue, and I'm up to two thousand um, for two reasons. One, uh, I I uh, have started getting more revenue per customer than what I was forecasting, um, primarily from dental policies. About half the people who signed up through the marketplace bought dental health insurance. And I took the time to get appointed with all those people. And now I'm getting like a little bit more money per person that does that. Um, the second expansion fact, revenue, I didn't think you'd have expansion revenue. It's, it's, it's not really expansion revenue. I would, I call it cause it wasn't, it, it was just initial purchase revenue, but I, I would call it like I, I, I had a, you know, a, a conservative assumption around average revenue per customer that is okay. higher now. That's how I gotcha. describe it. Um, the, but, but, uh, also I've lost a couple clients due to churn. Um, the primary reason, the only reason I've lost clients has been to them getting a job with health insurance, which is yeah. really interesting. Uh, not surprising, but interesting. And I've already had referral referred clients, uh, from my existing customer base, outpace those cancellations in year one. So if you think about it, like how long I've been at this in, in sort of, uh, operational terms, it's been about a lot, you know, 10 months, but from idea, when I first started talking to doing customer interviews, it's been about a year. Um, so I feel pretty good about my first year cohort of clients. And I feel, I guess the big thing is new clients from referrals should outpace cancellations from existing client base, which means this thing should like be assuming I just keep the doors open steady state. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's the dream, right? Cause every other source of customers is like fixed. It's not exponential or however you want. It's not based on the size of your current customer. So those two are the ones that matter your word of mouth and your churn. And if your word of mouth is bigger than your churn, you'll never plateau. Yeah. So, uh, and that's, so I feel good about that. I, do, does that sound right to you? It feels to me though, I think probably what's more exciting is that I can, I think the referrals can outpace the cancellations. Oh, yeah. That's and, amazing. Yeah. And I, I, I do feel that. I mean, this is so encouraging because I, I realize we're talking about small numbers. Who knows if this will hold up over time, but like you increased your revenue by 33% in two months immediately following open enrollment. Like this has got to be one of the slowest periods of the year for people to actually be buying health insurance. So I, you can't, you can't hope for better results than that. I don't think. Yeah. And, and, and if you think about it this past month, I have been totally focused on learning how to code. Like it has been the minimal amount of marketing. And so I, I don't know, I'm excited. Uh, but anyway, that's my update. Uh, I shifting sort of to what I've been working on this week. I am in complete prepare for uh, paternity mode. Um, so I've been in the throes of birthing courses, uh, which there's really no reason for you to watch these until you are about to have a baby, but you're forever changed after you watch them. <laughs> um, so I'm prepared for all potential outcomes. Um, and uh, I guess the only thing I'm worried about is there's like two types of births. One's like a natural birth. Um, and then the other is a cesarean birth. Like the term is C-section. I think I, I, I have a tendency to pass out. Like when I see blood. And, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, so like I used to, I, I got a shot one time at school and I fainted while I was standing up and they called the ambulance. It was like the most mortifying thing ever when I was in sixth grade. Um, and ever since then I've, 
I tell people like I get super anxious for a shot. Like I might pass out and I haven't passed out since then, but it's this big thing. So hmm. man, watching the cesarean, if I'm in there over the cesarean, I feel like I'm going to be the one like needing medical attention. Yeah. I mean, do you need to watch it? I know you should like be there for support, but like, can you not be behind a curtain or something? They, they put up a curtain, but the problem is that it's the smell and the mm. fact it's not, it's not like nothing bothers me about it. It's just the anxiety. It's like, I'm afraid I'm going to faint. And that makes me anxious. Yeah. Like, that makes I, me I know faint. the feeling. So for me, it's know. specifically blood. Cause I can get a shot. No problem. But whenever I have my blood taken, that's when I faint. <laughs> I'm so happy that I'm not the only one. Oh <laughs> uh, gosh. It's, it's uh, but yeah. So anyway, I am, um, I did that. And then I also decided to, um, you know, uh, torture myself by filing my taxes. Uh, so I started my business taxes and my, <laughs> what an adult <laughs> yeah, and my personal taxes. So, uh, yeah, cool. personal taxes are done. Um, I have, I, there's one more project that I want to get done before paternity, um, due dates roughly March 22nd. Um, and that is, uh, to flesh out leg up benefits. So I've got two customers on leg up benefits and I'm not, I'm just going to tease a little bit. One of the episodes we're going to record, for publication while I'm on paternity is you helping me workshop a, uh, what do you call it? A, a retreat state treat? or yeah, state a, treat. <laughs> an, an execution retreat for, um, for next week so that I can uh, hopefully go on paternity having most of the build and stabilize stuff done for leg up health and leg up benefits so that when I come back from paternity leave, I can start focusing on growth and rainmaking. Yeah, very cool. So I realize we're about to spend an hour talking about it. So I don't, I don't want to dive into the specifics, but like, given how we just said your 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 health insurance agency business is going so well, has it crossed your mind that maybe you don't need to do leg up benefits anytime soon because you could just work on growing what you've got? It it crosses my mind all the time, but then I come back to what am I really trying to build here? And it's the bigger vision of, yeah, mm-hmm. health in, this health insurance is a big piece, but there's this benefits opportunity, this, this shift from employer to employee. And I still believe that a massive growth channel for leg up health is going to be employers. And um, anyway, I, I, I went back to sort of my core assumptions about like 10 year growth. And it was like, why am I doing this? Well, if I do this and it works, it's so much easier to scale through employers and grow through employers um, gotcha. when you have a solution for them. Okay, cool. Good stuff. What about you? Um, yeah, so, you know, last week we kind of talked about my big, my retreat um, on building the content site. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I've got a couple updates on that. Um, nothing interesting, in, really, because, you know, we, we said last week, it's going to take two years or something. It's going to take a long time for content to take off. It is a little anticlimactic because you like you launch the site and you do get there's an initial surge of interest because like I have enough Twitter followers and stuff like that, that for a couple days, like people were I, I have like 22 newsletter subscribers, but they all. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome, man. It, it is cool. But, you know, it's all people who are following me on Twitter or something like that anyway. So for a couple days, you're like, oh, is like I'm getting these dopamine hits and then that fades. And now it's like, okay, like three people a day are hitting the site. So that's cool. (laughs) Um, We sent, so one of the plans we talked about is less annoying CRM has, I looked, it's like 22,000 or something newsletter subscribers. One of the, we we send the email every other week. So it went out this week, two days ago. Uh, The second link in that was a link to one of my blog posts on this new site. 
So we kind of took those 22,000 people and said, if you actually read this email, click this link. I think I got 60 or 70 visitors from it. So 60 Um, people of 22,000 clicked through? Yeah, but I mean, again, this is not the main... Okay. You have to like scroll down in the email. We're going to do okay. a separate email what, at some what, point. That's what like, email was it? It's we just have a newsletter for. I'm sorry. What what? Uh, pardon me. What 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 article did you link to? Uh, it was the remote work. How our remote work culture is set up. Okay. Cool. Um, and I I actually didn't have anything to do with that. Like the person who runs the newsletter on our end was just picked one. So, but the idea is like, anyway that that gives us a sense of what the click through rate might be. Maybe. Other topics will be more or less interesting to people. Uh, I'm looking at the page. Your your call to action to join the newsletters at the very bottom. So they'd have to, yeah, they'd have to scroll through the the newsletter to click. Then, <laughs> right, it's not a great funnel a right article, now. <laughs> and then click. Did you get any clicks on the CTA to join the newsletter? We got two newsletter subscribers. Oh, you uh, did. Yeah. Oh, I was looking at your update. It said no subscribers. So I was well, we got two after I, I put this on here on like Wednesday, and then we got two since then. That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, I don't have. I it's on my list to set up tracking to see because they have to click the CTA, and then that pops up a modal where they sign up. I don't have analytics on. Did people click it and then not sign up? Yeah, two out of sixty, I think, would be really good. Although, if it's like strangers on the internet, like they they Google for something and land on your blog. Getting two out of 60 would be amazing. I'd be super, super happy with that. I would expect my customers, they already know me, they already trust me to sign up at a higher rate. At the same time, maybe they don't understand this is a different website and a different newsletter. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, uh, basically just like, I'm, I'm not saying this because there's any discussion to be had, but just acknowledging when you launch something, there's kind of this like, postpartum, you know, depression type of thing going on. Well, you Not had, that I'm you, depressed. But. I mean, especially with the way you launched this thing. I mean, you went seven days grinding. Yeah. And now it's manic. just like, oh, wow. Okay, I did all that. Yep. Now what? And yeah. So um, Patience getting, is the name of the game now. Uh, absolutely, 100%. Um, something I've been seeing, another thing that causes doubt, and I, I want to be clear, I'm still 100% committed. I'm not act, but I'm just trying to say out loud what everybody thinks in their head when this is going on. A lot of people are having conversations. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. Like, is it worth building an audience? Have you followed any of this conversation going on? I haven't followed it, but I feel like it's there. there there's always two sides to any conversation. And so there, there is a, there has been a massive increase over the last year or two in why you should build an audience. Right. And so, so the backlash what, what, is happening you, now. The backlash <laughs> is happening now. Yes. So yeah, like just the history here, you know, back when I started Lesson Learning CRM, the idea of building an audience was basically non-existent. Like email newsletters were pretty minor. Twitter had barely existed. What you did is you built a product and then you went and sold it. And then, yeah, maybe 2015 or something around there, it started becoming very trendy to be like, first you build an audience, you, you build a newsletter, you have your Twitter followers. And then once you've done that, you kind of stair step your way towards okay, now when you launch something, you don't have to market it from scratch. You already have an audience. Um, The backlash I'm seeing now is basically saying, if you're selling info products, that's great. Because you've got all your audience, like let's say you're an expert designer. Your followers are designers because that's what you talk about. You launch an ebook or a paid newsletter or something about design, they'll buy it. That's fine. It's very different from being like, okay, I'm a designer, and then I go launch a CRM, and it's like, well, all your followers are designers, and even if they were salespeople, they don't necessarily need a CRM. Like, you can't buy a SaaS product on an impulse the same way you buy info products. So a lot of people now are saying, audience is not the same as customers. It's not worth building an audience. 
I mean, the, the context is before you like launch, right? Which I don't, I, like you said, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but it does like when I'm, I'm like already 10, 10 years late to the game of blogging and trying to build a newsletter here. And I'm like, did I miss my window here? <laughs> can, can we just fly up a second and just get out of this nonsensical back and forth argument? There are good reasons to do lots of different things. There are bad reasons to do lots of different things. Do things for good reasons. And you don't have to worry about what other people say. You're yeah. doing what you're doing for a good reason, not because you're built, the outcome is to build an audience, but the outcome is to grow your business less than CRM and you're trying something to do that. And you have logically thought through how you might do that through lessannoyingbusiness.com. And I am frankly like, this is one of those f- conversations that just frustrates me because it's like, there's no reason to argue here. No, there, let, let there me push are, back on that. There are good reasons to build an audience and there are bad reasons to build an audience. Don't build an audience for bad reasons or don't Absolutely. build an audience for no reason. Absolutely. But I think there's stuff when someone says, here's the reasons not to do it. Of course, you shouldn't interpret that as, okay, never build an audience. But there are things to learn to say, like, what what are the reasons they're saying that and does that apply to me? And I think it does. That's the thing is, in this case, I think I have something to learn from what they're saying, which is an audience is not the same as customers. And I need to be very careful about not chasing some vanity metric where it's like, okay, I've got a 5,000 person email list, but it's all indie hackers. I think that's mm. a worthwhile lesson to take away from this. Yeah, but you know that. I do, yes. But okay, anyway. so, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's like, it's what, um, yes, when people are arguing, they usually both sides have really good points and you should take the points. But you, in this case, the arguments on both sides are flawed. It's like, it's situ- totally situational. And be smart about it. An audience is an asset, but it's a bigger asset in other in one situation than it is in another situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, okay, a couple more things. Yeah, uh, when's the last time you like did a an ad campaign? Mm, a true ad campaign, like where you're writing ad copy or making you know graphics, whatever they call them. Uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I guess I didn't really think of it as an ad campaign, but the last time would have been when I was building legupelt.com about a year ago. Okay. I haven't I mean, done it about a, six like, months a long ago. time. It's um, hard. It's really it's hard. It's hard. I thought I was just going to like, I, I don't know why I picked Quora as the place to start. Not because not I think it's best, just you got to start somewhere. Are you doing paid, um, paid ad copy I'm on doing paid Quora? Ads Ooh, I'm on very Quora. interested to hear how that goes. Uh, yeah, so far what happened is I got a big surge of clicks that almost immediately dropped off. So I suspect their volume's just not that high. I um, mean, I think I just like saturated it in like three days and it cost $27. So I, I didn't spend much money, but also didn't see many results. But just like writing ad copy, I was like, oh, it's like five words. You know, I'll, I'll write the five words. And you're sitting there like, man, I could frame this in any number of ways. I haven't I don't have any customers yet, so I haven't done customer interviews. I don't like, I don't have any sense of what language resonates with people. It is, it's really creative work in a very different way than I'm used to. Yeah, especially when you're starting from Nova, like you're, you writing copy before you have validation on what you're doing is, yeah. is extremely hard. Writing copy in general is hard, but what you're mm-hmm. doing without having like had conversations, maybe that's telling you something. Maybe that you need to go instead of, doing these ads right now, you need to do what you really hate to do, which is go have conversations with people about it. Yeah, I think that's not a bad idea. Although I also think if if I just if I devote more time to the ads, I actually think one of the ways to get validation is this way. If I had written. So what I did is I made one ad because I was I was just burnt out. Uh, like uh, this was at the very end of that sprint I did. 
But if I had done 20 ads and been like, which one of these do people click on? I think you could learn a lot from that. I just haven't done that yet. How are you pitching this? Which which well, your copy? I only have advertised the course. I'm not advertising lessannoyingbusiness.com. I'm advertising like, here's a course that t- teaches you how to build a website. Learn to build a website in, seven, um, in 16 days. Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, I think that te- it's specifically focusing on low tech. So it's like, you know, you think you're not tech savvy enough to build a website or something. like I forget the exact copy I used, but something along those lines. And you, oh, that's interesting. Core is interesting because potentially people could be stumbling on there, like how to build a website. And gosh, is how how competitive? Have you done any competitive analysis? Seventeen cents per click, so not that competitive. But like, are there other people? If you go search on Cora for those questions that you want, are there I other done people? That yet. Yeah, it'd be every time to see. I yeah, every time I search for something on Cora, it's like there are five hundred answers. It, it is hard to find threads on there that are not like very, very well answered already, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I guess what I mean is I'd be interested, like, who, what are your competitive alternatives? In other words, mm, yeah, uh, it's, I'm a per, I am a potential subscriber to LessonLearningBusiness.com. I have a problem. I need to build a personal website I have, or a business website. I have no idea how to do it. I want to get it done. I don't really care if I do it or not. So I've got a couple of options. I can pay someone else to do it. I can uh, figure out how to do it on online, um, or I can uh, call my nephew who mm-hmm. majored in computer science and have him come do an internship for me. Um, wh- like, have you thought about like where that like if I would think YouTube would probably be a really interesting place, and you, your competition is probably someone walking someone through how to do this on YouTube. Yeah. I think that's probably right. And I I, do, I did create a YouTube channel that, I mean, I haven't done anything to actually get any traffic, but I think YouTube could be a big place for ads, for finding influencers to potentially sponsor, uh, for putting my own videos up. I think I don't use YouTube like that. I, 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 the only way I use YouTube is I'm on Twitter. Someone links to a YouTube video. I go watch it and then I close YouTube. But I think it's a very powerful place. Pe- yeah, people go there for all kinds of things. I mean, it's it is it is the source for ha- when I need help coding. That's where I go. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, as soon as I bought a house, like now, if I need to like install a thermostat, I'm like YouTube. I'm sure has the answer. <laughs> See, I'm I'm going a different direction. I'm calling the electrician. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I have no interest in, in figuring that kind of stuff out. Yeah, I say that though, but I I did install the ring, and that was kind of fun. Did you get a ring? Uh, no, Nest? I. I don't have any video stuff, but I, I just installed some new uh, super fancy locks. It's got a fingerprint scanner, so you just put your hand on the handle and it unlocks. It's awesome. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, final update for me. This is like changing topics a little bit. Uh, I We are starting to look into this thing called Elasticsearch at Less Annoying CRM, which is basically our search is very adequate for small accounts, and it's pretty terrible for big accounts. I shouldn't say terrible. It's just slow. Um, and so we need to speed it up. And there's this open source tool called Elasticsearch that is really po- like overkill for what we need. It's super, super powerful, but this is the solution. And I'm only mentioning it. Like I don't, we don't need to get in the technical weeds, but one of our software engineers is looking into it and he's like, there's very little resources online, despite it being like used by every company in the world. Like nobody writes about how to use it properly. And so I was like, maybe I can use my newfound Twitter audience for the first time ever. Because, you know, I, I got like 
tripled my Twitter audience a month ago because I had that one tweet that went big. Isn't that amazing how quickly that grew? And yeah. <laughs> it's like you're now now you're kind of waiting for the next tweet to hit it. Yeah, because anything else you do can't have an even close to that. I went from like 900 to, I didn't triple, but like 900 to 1850 or something followers. And now, now it's like, oh, if I post a really good tweet, I'll get one follower. So <laughs> power laws, man, they're, they're a bitch. Uh, but yeah, so I, I tweeted something. It wasn't like an overwhelming response, but I got like three people being like, here's the person to talk to about that. So I, it's kind of neat. I, I've never like leverage. I've been getting more into the community. I'm in this earnest. But Slack you shouldn't, and stuff you shouldn't like build an audience because it's just not a good idea. It's not a good idea. Never, yeah, do never, it. never do it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's kind of, kind of cool being, I, I've never felt like I was a part of a community. We should also say like, there's a difference between audience and community, right? I have a Twitter community, which is people I talk to and they talk to me. And then I have a Twitter audience, which is people I, I don't know who they are and they just watch what I say. The community is what I find valuable here. It's like people I've, well, I've never met in person, but like, I feel like I trust, you know? Yeah. Interesting. I, I, do you feel like the pandemic has accelerated that and made it more valuable or did you always have this? I didn't always have it, but I, I kind of think it it overlapped with the pandemic for me, but I would guess it had nothing to do with it. I think just I hit a point in my career where I was like, I am feeling confident enough to start putting myself out there, mm. if that makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it's it, for me, the pandemic has forced me online more. To, it's mm. forced me to get more comfortable with the online communities like Twitter um, and Indie Hackers, for example. And uh, I don't think if the pandemic hadn't come, I would have been forced to do that because I'd be doing the in-person stuff. That makes sense. So yeah, I, I wasn't doing the in-person stuff. So that makes sense for you. I don't think that that really applies to me probably. Cool. But all right. That's so all it's my funny. Updates. Yeah, it's funny to have two updates. One update being like, people are saying don't build an audience. And then, you know, you have a thing of like, I'm so glad I have a community on Twitter to, <laughs> that I can tweet to tweet out to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the world is complicated and it's good to hear all sides <laughs> <laughs> to a point, to a point at some point it becomes noise. Yeah. Um, Peloton. I got a Peloton. I, I said like months ago I ordered it, but they're so back ordered. I finally, it arrived. So, I mean, have you unwrapped it and gotten on it yet? Or is this something that's yeah. going to sit there? No, I've used it, uh, five times now. Really? In two weeks. That's pretty um, good, man. I, you never know. Like it's possible six months from now I'm, I'm done. Cause I've had a stationary bike before and I just didn't use it, but I think it's actually going to be different for me. Like it feels categorically different and I think I'm going to stick with it. Is it the gamification of it? Yeah. The bike itself, it's, it's not the bike itself. Like I do think it's probably a very high quality piece of equipment, but like I had no problem with my previous one. Um, it's just having a person on the screen like before i'd be like okay i'm gonna sit down and start pedaling and i'm gonna stop when i'm bored which would be three minutes later you know and now it's like oh this person says it's 25 minutes and like they're telling me not to stop you know so like and and like how hard do you push yourself well they say to change the resistance to this certain amount so i guess i better do it because the person on the screen told me to like it, it's gimmicky but it i think it works mm, that's interesting that's cool i would my, I would say like my dad was asking me if like he, it would be good for him. Uh, he is a workout freak. Like he exercises all the time. I wouldn't recommend it for someone who is already has no problem exercising. Like the reason it's good for me is because my, my option is exercise with a Peloton or don't exercise at all. And it's worth $3,000 
to me to like exercise. But that's great for you. I, not that you, I realize you didn't ask, but like got, I wouldn't. I've got a bike already right here. <laughs> yeah, I see that. <laughs> but like you're kind of a a very intrinsically motivated exerciser. Like you, you can't help but do it, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, I, the reason I worry about a Peloton is I feel like it would mess up the things I like to do. Yeah. It would compete in a negative way almost. That's fair. Yeah. But I've, I've been really happy with it. Cool. Cool. Um, uh, how about you? Well, I was wondering if you could help me understand this is, you mentioned uh, Justin Jackson earlier. I, I've, I've some of the things Justin Jackson says, I totally follow. And then some things I like, I'll read like 15 times and I'll try to read the comments. And I just don't get it. And this is one of them. Mm-hmm. He tweeted about the, like how we need to like, not, I, I, di- I didn't understand the tweet, but it was about the long, slow, sass ramp of death trope. What is he referring to in this tweet? And I'm wondering if you could tell, tell me like, because he got a lot of likes and comments on him. Like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I cannot follow this conversation <laughs> at all. It must be important if it's getting all these likes. But I, can He's, you help? yeah, I'll uh, let's get into that. But at first, I just want to say he is the master of like tweeting things the right level of controversial where people like disagree, but not in a way where they can't talk to each other. He's a brilliant marketer because all these topics, it's like no one cares about this, but it just turns into this thing all of a sudden. Anyway, what is the long sass ramp of death? The long, slow sass ramp of death is a, I believe it is the title of a talk that I think is Gail Goodman, her name, the, uh, I don't know if she still is, but the original CEO of Constant Contact gave. So it's like a video of a, talk at a conference um, that I take it you have not seen, but I have seen it. A lot of people in our field have seen it. And it's basically talking about constant contact, which for anyone who doesn't know is like this big, probably hundreds of millions of ARR, maybe mil- maybe billions, I don't know, but like big email marketing and kind of one of the OG SaaS companies. And she's just like, here's how hard it is. They raised, I think, $20 million and they kind of had this initial burst of excitement and then it kind of faded back down and they had years of bit, like very, very slowly growing it up. So the, the long, slow SaaS ramp of death is talking about that period after you've raised money, after you've gotten a little traction, but before you're actually profitable and the numbers start working, just how hard that slog is. Oh, so it's the ramp after it's the ramp while you're technically the living dead before you are reborn basically in a, into a real company. I yeah, got you. It, it's been years since I've seen the talk, but my memory is it's it's kind of like SaaS is all about compounding, right? It's about you put in a little bit of work here and there, and then like years from now, that work is amplified. It's the years you go through where you're not sure if you're going to make it, and then finally you make it. Yeah, okay. and but but when you make it, it's so good, right? That's yeah. the thing about SaaS; it's so hard until you make it. But once you make it, you are now seeing the benefits of years of work you put in before, and it goes from really really hard to really really easy pretty quickly. I think. Okay, so what was Justin Jackson's point? His point now that I was the reference. You, it's so much easier to build and launch a SaaS product now that if you look at recent companies that have had some success, they don't go through the slow, the long, slow SaaS ramp of death. And I, I I'm not entirely sure what the, his point is, but I think it's we shouldn't be setting up SaaS founders to think it takes eight years. Because if it takes them eight years, that's more likely a sign that they are failing than it is a sign that they're on the the same ramp that Constant Contact was on. Totally. And what made this so confusing is long, slow SaaS ramp of death sounds bad, 
Right. But it, it actually is a good thing because if you make it through that, then you're constant contact. Okay. Um, okay, cool. So yeah. Okay. So, and what, what did you have any thoughts on that? Feels I like, actually, I, I said, I, I said I attended a second Twitter spaces thing. Okay. It was, that's what it was. It was right. him talking about that. And, um, yeah, I, I sort of don't disagree. I actually was talking in the Twitter space for a bit because no one else showed up at first. And so I was like, well, someone has to talk. So I went up there and my point was basically, I, I think I agree with him, but it's not hard to tell if you're heading in the right direction, I don't think. Like there's a big difference between I'm running a SaaS company and I'm not net gaining customers from I'm running a SaaS company and every month I get another customer or I get one more customer than I churn. So I'm net netting one per month. Those are two very different worlds. And it's like, if you're on this long ramp, but trending in the right direction, stick with it. If you're on this long ramp and nothing's, it, you're not making progress, probably it's failing. And what did, did, did anyone argue with you on that? It kind of got, that, that wasn't the point, I guess, okay. of what people were talking about. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. This feels like a very similar conversation to the audience conversation where it's like, it's situational. Like there isn't, yeah. you know, it, it depends on, like you said, the trajectory and whether or not you're willing to slog this out. And if you do the, if you do the numbers and you are com reasonably confident, these numbers are going to hold, does it compound into something meaningful in a time period that's reasonable for that you can afford and that works yeah. for, for your, for your motivation. And I didn't say this at the time, but like one important thing here, SAS, a mature SAS, you should probably model growth as being linear. Like you shouldn't think of it like we grew 5% last month, you should think of it as we grew what X dollars in revenue and maybe expect month after month, maybe that'll accelerate, maybe it'll decelerate, but something like linear is probably about right. But for an early stage SaaS, it's almost certainly accelerating. So if someone's like, well, I'm on pace to be at, you know, my goal is to hit 10,000 MRR. I'm on pace to be there in a year and a half. Realistically, you're actually on pace to be way ahead of that because your growth is going to be backloaded because you're accelerating most likely. So if you're even seeing small gains right now, I, I don't think it's outrageous to be like, okay, that's going to compound and start accelerating and like, I'll, I'll get there faster than it looks like I will. Mm. Do you buy that? Yes, I do. I, I, if, if, if you're, yeah, grow, if you're growing, yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe arguably even you're there right now where like you're growing, you're not like through the roof. Oh, can't keep up with the growth. But if you look at it, it's like, well, where are you going to be in a year? Like you're going to be great, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's what that was about. That's helpful. Thank you. Sometimes mm -hmm. like that was one of those where I was like, I'm scratching my head. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. I'm just going to get put frustrated this by people. I love it. I love debate. I want yeah. to see people debating. I don't care who wins. You get frustrated by it, I think. Yes, I get frustrated by noise and it's like let's just go let's not actually make a point like let's let's make a point but like it's not thought through enough to actually be a good enough point to stand on its own it has to be qualified it, it's like a point without a qualification without the required mm. qualification i i that bothers me because i feel like people read it and take it as truth yeah when it's not truth and so I'm trying to get better at not feeling like I need need to chime in in those situations because I, I that's not what people want. Yeah, I think it's more a form of entertainment than like I, you're following it for practical business advice and you're probably right that a lot of other people are too and they're getting the wrong idea from it. I view it as entertainment. I'm like, I think these topics are interesting. I like these people. Let's see them talk. Honestly, that's actually really helpful to me because if I think if I, if I put an entertainment lens on this, I'd probably 
be much more fun to engage with in some of these <laughs> conversations versus like I, I, I do get frustrated. Yes. Yeah. That's a good thing. Thank you for, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, switching uh, subjects. Uh, I want to just call out Airtable. Um, of course, this is both a good and a bad thing. Airtable has re- updated their scripting app. So two, three weeks ago, uh, Tyler and I did a peer, peer programming uh, session where we tried to build on top of my database in Airtable a script that would send my monthly account update email. But we ran into some blocks with the ability to write a JavaScript call to an API um, in the browser um, based on how they had built their scripting uh, tool. And so we ended up having to build that uh, app, that app, that mini app um, to, to do what I wanted to do in PHP. It worked out fine. But uh, of course, this week, uh, Airtable has updated the API uh, or the scripting app to fix that API call in the browser issue and actually call the API from Airtable servers. So what this opens up for Legup Health and then really no coders or low, I should say low coders, is the ability to do some really sophisticated stuff within Air t- on top of the Airtable uh, base with JavaScript. Um, and uh, especially with where member stack is going um, from uh, building out their version two of the platform and, and making their API more um, useful. There's some, there's going to be some really cool stuff um, that low coders can do without having to learn, uh, you know, really backend developing. Yeah. I mean, I was blown away. Uh, like you said, what, what we tried to build an Airtable didn't work, but it would work now. But even I, I was blown away at what you can do. So, and for for anyone who hasn't used it, like it's looks like a Google spreadsheet. But what Rick had done is put a button in each row that basically said send the email to this person. And you click the button, it runs code, it calls the right APIs to pull data down for that person. It just does whatever you want. Then it calls. What are you using? Postmark. Uh, I kept I used grid yep. to send the email to them. And then there's a button at the top that's like basically simulate clicking this button for every row. So run it for everybody. So yeah, like things like nightly scripts, uh, account update stuff. I mean, you could do some very, very cool stuff in there. Yeah. The, the thing, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, that made me really happy to see that out. Um, we're going to talk more about that in the leg up benefits episode. Cool. Looking forward to it. All right. I don't think I have any other, uh, topics for today. Do you want to do any of these big ones or should we, uh, call it a little early? Let's call it early. Um, sounds good. I appreciate, I, I'm reflecting on, we talked a lot about audience building and community and tw- putting yourself out there in Twitter. Sometimes I think it's, what I'm taking away from this episode is sometimes you have to realize that not everything has to be like optimized to the, to the 10th degree. And sometimes people just want to hang. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that I, I needed that reminder today. So if you're getting frustrated with anyone sort of not going at your pace, it's probably because they just want to hang. And if you can adjust your, your mentality, you might be more pleasant to be around. That's a great way to phrase it. Cause that's, that exactly sums up. Like I said earlier, what changed about me? Why am I a part of, why am I doing more of this than before? And I, I gave an answer that I think was not quite right. It's, it's, I want to hang. I have realized this is for me a fun space to hang out in. When I was when I was going to co-working spaces in St. Louis in person, I never liked it because the they weren't my people. Yes, they were local, but they weren't SaaS. They were whatever. And I think I found my people, and I like hanging out. 
I'm going to put this to work. I don't know exactly how it's going to, what it's going to turn into, but this was good. Thank you for, for pulling cool. that out. Yeah. Um, Hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have a favor to ask. Please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. If you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week. See ya.